All right. Well, talk mental health uh, with Logan Noon, with Dr. Logan Noon. I always forget to throw that in there. Yeah. So, Todd, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. This is Dr. Todd Levin. Um, he's a DO like myself. He's currently chief of medicine at Jefferson, New Jersey Health, New Jersey, where I'm a resident. Um, he's medical director of Haddonfield Primary and Specialty Care and LGBTQ Affirming Practice. Um, he's a practi practicing infectious disease physician, um, also serves on the Medical Ethics Committee, uh, Wellness Committee, and, and I imagine some other roles here at uh, Jefferson, New Jersey. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Logan. I'm happy to be here and uh, happy to talk about these uh, inter interesting topics. And, uh, and it was really impressive to me to hear everything that you said that you like to, to do to try to uh, relax and stay mentally healthy is things that we've been promoting for the Resident Wellness Committee for five years. So I wanted to get to know you a little bit more after that and, uh, and take it from there. As far as me personally, it certainly did take me back to my uh, PGY1 or intern year. We're not supposed to call them interns anymore postgraduate year one resident is uh, what they are. But for me, it was uh, 1999 and uh, really at these same hospitals that I'm still working at now called Jefferson, New Jersey. Um, but it is quite a, a transition and uh, us in medicine are always going through transitions. Every few years you have a, a new change from, you know, starting medical school, the first two years are, uh, in the classroom and then you're clinical and then you become a doctor and then all of a sudden we can talk a bit about that imposter syndrome that everyone thinks that you know everything because you're a doctor but you're really a doctor for just a day or two and it takes time to learn and even me at this point 20 years later i'm still learning and that's what i like about medicine but it certainly brought back memories to my intern uh, year and uh wasn't very sure of myself and uh I just remember really trying to be uh, open and nice to everyone, especially nurses, because nurses have the experience that we did not have at that time, and they know what to do. So they are very helpful colleagues in doing the right thing for the patient. So it was just very interesting to think back to those times and uh, the lessons I learned in that first year of, of being a doctor. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of the audience members are within the healthcare um, system, um, but most, most especially a lot of them are medical students. And so it's, you know, May 7th. So come, you know, a month, two months or so, we have fourth year medical students about to start their intern year. So what would be like one good piece of advice to to give these newly starting uh, PGY1s, as you call them. Um, I, I still like to use the, the word intern. It makes me, I don't know. I, I, it reminds me of almost watching the show Scrubs from the 90s, you know? Right. Um, and just like that dynamic and, and uh, the, the fun camaraderie that I've built with other divisions of um, medicine, you know, outside of just psychiatry. Uh, yeah. But I digress. But what advice would you give to these interns that are about to start, um, you know, July 1st or so? Right. Absolutely. I have lots of advice. I love your comment on interns, though, and that's a, a great going back to the show Scrubs, and that traditionally that's what it is. But the main point with this is that uh, PGY1s or interns are doctors, and interns can kind of be a, 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 a degradating or a, a term that kind of brings you down and makes people feel as less of a doctor. 
And the point is where you're, you're the same as the PGY five or seven, depending on what service you're in. We're all training. We're all in this together. And uh, our main goal is just to help the patient. So we don't want to, to have different uh, classes basically. And that's why that term, at least in more of the academic uh, fields is, is trying to, to come out of phase and we're trying to not use that. Uh, but to answer your question, as far as advice, you know, just to be confident in your training, you spent a lot of time, uh, four years, uh, training for, to be a doctor. And now you finally are and, uh, realize that you're not expected to know everything. You know, obviously a first day doctor isn't going to, uh, be able to do everything, but that's, what's great about the system. It's, it's really set up in a way that you always have, uh, mentors and colleagues to go to, to help, to ask questions. And that never ends at any point of your medical uh, career. I already mentioned about uh, nurses, how they are so important, such an important part of the team, and they will help you, especially during that PGY one year. Uh, but just be confident in your, in your training and, um, and ask for help. You know, there's definitely a learning curve and you will get comfortable. And uh, eventually I talked a little bit about how every few years we always have a, a new change, a new responsibility, new um, things to do, new sets of rules and responsibilities to be comfortable with. But you're getting there as a, a PGY-1, you're, you know, fine, depending on if you're going to do a fellowship or not, that might be one more change. But then when you're done that, or if you don't do a fellowship, then you're attending. And that's really a, a, a great uh, accomplishment. That's the last change. So at that point, you don't have to worry about any new uh, feelings of uh, insecurity, a new job. You're going to be doing that one job the rest of your life. Sure, you may be changing locations, and that will uh, be new and different, and uh, there's a learning curve to that. But it's finally nice to, to be at the end of all these changes because change is obviously very hard to cope with uh, many, on many standpoints, especially a mental health standpoint. Yeah, and I really liked the, the one part you said there, like, you don't necessarily have to know everything. I think that what comes with kind of graduating medical school and finally being a doctor, it's like, oh my God, like now I'm supposed to be the expert. I'm supposed to know everything. I was just having a lunch with one of my second year colleagues yesterday, um, this guy who's really interested in cardiology. And I made some remark how, oh man, I think this one attending thinks like I'm a total idiot. You know, I've made a, a few mistakes or, you know, missed some things. And she said to really teach me a lot. And he was like, Logan, like, you're being really hard on yourself. You know, like, you're a resident, and this is what residency is for. So you have people supervising everything you're doing so that you can learn from your mistakes. Like, that's why we don't just graduate medical school and start as a full attending. Like, we, this is why we have residency. And I think that's the best piece of advice, like, that I would give to myself restarting intern year. I put so much pressure on myself and um, I think if you can just really get comfortable leaning on your superiors, whether that's your senior uh, residents or, you know, picking up the phone to call uh, the attending to run the case with them. Like that's why they're your attending. They, that's their job. They're getting paid to teach you. So take advantage of all those opportunities. Yeah. And just from an attending standpoint to, to go on on that a little bit, attendings really like to teach. You know, that's why a lot of us stay at uh, academic uh, hospitals, uh, medical institutions, because it is so rewarding from an attending standpoint to be involved with medic medical education. Uh, first of all, residents, you keep us on our toes, which is good. It's like a system of checks and balances. We have to know our stuff to be teaching you. 
And uh, there is such a great uh, personal reward to help someone with their uh, career, to help them become confident as a, a physician. So it, it goes both ways. You're helping us, but we're also helping you. And I, I always uh, make the point, as I said already, I believe, is that we're really in this together. Our, our main goal is to help the patient, and we're working as a team. And now more than uh, ever, that's never been uh, more important. So uh, always remember that, that it's a, a beneficial or a symbiotic relationship. It goes both ways. So we're, we're reaping the benefit of being teachers too. Yeah, wow. I never really kind of thought of it in that regard. That's a kind of cool way to, to think about it. Um, I'd like to kind of shift a little bit onto to burnout. Um, you know, so you're part of the resident wellness committee. Um, I imagine you deal with burnout in your other um, administrative roles, you know, through just regular employees at the hospital. Um, so a lot of my, not a lot, I shouldn't say, but some of my resident friends, you know, are already talking about, you know, once I'm attending, I want to have these financial strategies so that I can retire at the age of like, 50 or whatever, or young, you know, or just, and have this goal where essentially they're already over their career. They don't want to do this. Um, they're burned out even as just a simple resident. It makes me really sad, you know, because geez, I went, uh, I, I'm a non-traditional student. So I went back to school two years before medical school after my initial four-year degree. And then I did two years of, uh, or excuse me, four years of medical school. And now I'm doing four years of residency. There's so much training. And to think we go through all those years of training to only then retire early, it seems like such a waste of a wonderful resource for an entire community. So how can we best mitigate against this? I, I, I hope that people love their careers because we have such a great impact on people. Right, absolutely. I agree, Logan. And the first point is for our medical students that are listening, you really have to uh, take some time and choose wisely what residency, what career you want to go in. It's so different being a, from being a psychiatrist to being a surgeon to being an infectious disease uh, physician. Uh, lifestyle is very different. Call responsibility is different. Work hours are different. You know, urgency of seeing patients is different. And there's also different settings. So the first point is really to, to be sure that you consider everything in making that important decision. Um, the beginning of medical school, you really don't have to, you're just learning everything. But by third or fourth year, when you're getting out into the uh, hospitals and clinics and seeing different rotations and uh, different specialties, that's when you really start to think about what you want for your career. So our career is a, a long time, you know, so you have to do something that you're really happy with and is rewarding for you. That will keep you going. Um, dealing with burnout, that's, that's tough. I think that uh, in the past, we haven't done so well with that, especially when I started my residency, you know, 20 plus years ago and I was a young attendant. We didn't really do much, unfortunately, about burnout. And it was certainly was there. There's studies showing that it was prevalent back then. Um, maybe the one good thing that has come out of COVID is, is uh, having people refocus on burnout. We were doing it before then. It became, you know, part for, you know, ACGME, ACGME and the um, residents training that they were focusing on burnout. They saw that out was such a, pat, a, pat, a problem. But COVID really highlighted that. There was so much isolation um, for patients and for healthcare workers. Uh, we weren't seeing family uh, socially. You weren't seeing your friends. You were just in your your pod, uh, whether you had a relationship or not, or if not, you're spending a lot of time alone. So this really highlighted 
uh, wellness uh, principles. And I'm happy that our resident wellness program started uh, before that, started in 2017. So we were working on uh, some of these and the hospitals have also been a great support. And basically the main thrust of the a wellness program is just to provide support, make sure that uh, colleagues, healthcare workers, residents know where to turn to when they need help. Um, there's tons of resources uh, and a lot of it is for uh, mental health resources. Um, if you're employed by a, a healthcare system, there's an employee assistance program that's always available and gives you five uh, free counseling sessions and then can help you find someone through your insurance to, uh, to finish that off. There's also some uh, uh, telepsychiatry programs that are available at no cost for healthcare workers. Um, and that's just one aspect of wellness is the mental health wellness. I'm a big proponent of uh, counseling, just talking about these uh, tough issues, these problems with the counselor will help you process it and get through and feel better about yourself. But then you can't forget the other aspects of wellness, simple things like spending time with friends and family, um, nutrition, eating well, exercise, uh, taking time off, you know, vacations, do what you like to do. I have a t-shirt, do what makes you happy. And uh, that's very important. So we have to make sure that we are always thinking about these things and, and give residents, especially the opportunity uh, to, to have uh, wellness events and spend time doing what you need to do to stay happy. And hopefully that will prevent burnout in the future and uh, people will be able to work for as long as they want to. Not everyone may want to work until they're 65, um, but it'll give you the opportunity that you, if you like your career, like what you're doing, you get positive feedback, then you can work your whole career in medicine if that's what you want to do. Yeah, you know, I feel like because I work in the mental health space, um, in my limited experience, you know, keep in mind, I'm only a PGY1, but what I've seen a lot, it's, you know, sometimes it seems like when people retire early, they, in a sense, like find their way to death earlier too. Like they stop living in some way, contributing to society. And, and I get, I, I want to, of course, travel the world and golf every single day of my life, all these amazing things. But, you know, I think having an impact on the world is, is why we're here, you know, however you do want to kind of have an impact on that world. And I think as physicians, we have such an immense responsibility, you know, that corny phrase from all those superhero movies, but because we can have such an impact on our community that we really owe it to them to continue to work in some regard. And, and I don't want to ever be forced into work, but I hope that our goal is to, like you're saying, like live a happy life, not necessarily have this goal of having the most amount of money in the bank and all these things. I, I just want to focus on enjoying my life and having a enough money, not the most amount of money, and just to to enjoy what I'm doing every day. And I'm, I'm kind of rambling here, but I just want, I always try to remind people that our identities need to be more than just as a physician. When we're in training, like I am as a resident, working a lot, a lot of hours, our still identity needs to be separate than just being a resident. You know, whether that's, I'm a husband, I'm a cat dad, dog dad, you know, uh, brother, son. I have to honor all these other things about my life in addition to being a physician. And it makes me then more sympathetic with my patients and able to connect with them better. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I don't want to say that was uh, rambling at all. That's uh, 
Perfect. That's what you, you have to do it simple. Just do what makes you happy. You have lots of responsibility outside of uh, medicine. That's part of it. Um, but I totally agree with you also. One of the things that's nice about being a physician is, uh, you know, depending on what type of physician you are, some make more money than others. But in general, it gives you the financial stability to not worry about living paycheck to paycheck, which is nice. And you can spend some time on those other things that make you happy. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's very important to pursue those things as we discussed. So I kind of want to now shift our conversation um, to just like the relationship between clinical staff and administration. Um, and you're the first administrator really I've ever had a chance to kind of sit down with and have a nice conversation like this. And, and you seem great. But I feel like there's this kind of like unwritten culture of this weird animosity between clinical staff and administrators in some regard. I, I don't know. And what I wanted to say, like an example of most recently in COVID, you know, um, the, the culture of nursing, we dealt a lot with uh, traveling nurses over the past couple of years, you know, with the great exodus with a lot of nurses leaving the healthcare force. And these traveling nurses, you know, they got compensated very well, maybe better, likely better than uh, the, the regular home institution nurses. And it just, it seemed like there was some animosity then between uh, the administration and um, nursing staff because, hey, why can't you pay us this rate of traveling nurses all the time kind of thing? So how can we improve this relationship? How can we improve the communication between like clinical staff and administration to kind of get on the same page of the goal of just helping patients and, and getting a satisfying career? Right. You got it. You actually said it right there, Logan. And I've stressed that several times. We all really have the, the same goal. And, and that is just helping patients and uh, improving safety in the hospital. And that's what administrators help with a lot. Um, I don't know if I really see a lot of animosity between them, um, between, you know, healthcare workers and administrators. And maybe, you know, our levels are a little bit different and I do 30% of my job is, is administrative currently, 70% is still clinical, mm -hmm. uh, but I was 100% clinical up until a, a year ago. And um, part of it may be, you know, just what you see or hear or think preconceived notions about administrators, but I really think it's an important just to, to get to know them kind of like we're doing right here if I have an administrator hat on right now and uh, realize, as you said, that administrators are really just regular people and uh, we have the same goals um, and we all just want to, to get along. In, in general, everyone just needs to get along in order to, to help uh, patients and make things go smoothly and improve uh, safety. So hopefully, you know, I think we can get away from that uh, perceived animosity if people just uh, try to get to know each other a little bit and there really aren't uh, titles um, that we're all here to, to help each other and, and uh, make for a better work environment. Yeah, you know, and I think the solution to this, like you said, perceived um, maybe animosity, I personally have an experience, like I said, you know, you're the only administrator I truly actually have a relationship with at this point. But I think it doesn't have to be necessarily these wild, complex solutions. You know, I think like simple camaraderie, like you're describing, is one of the best ways to improve work culture, um, satisfaction with work. And I feel like right now in my experience of, you know, working in a hospital, you know, I'm really enjoying getting to know my, my 
purely psychiatry colleagues, any of their other residents and other programs. However, one thing I'm frustrated by, it's kind of a silo. You know, there's not really necessarily the camaraderie with residents and nurses or even, you know, administrators, attendings. And I don't know necessarily what would be the exact solution and how that would look like. But if there could be some kind of camaraderie between all of them, whether that be um, workplace events, you know, socializing opportunities. Um, I mean, I think everyone loves free food. I, I don't know. But bringing people together, you know, across different um, job aspects and and I've been really trying to make a good effort to, you know, treat everyone, nurses, even patient technicians, janitorial staff, and get to know them, too, because they're all vital components of the hospital system. Yep, absolutely. I totally agree. And we were doing a lot more of those social things before COVID, of course, and now we're getting back into it. Um, we just had a dinner with our medicine section heads on a Thursday night a couple nights ago and it was really nice the first time in three years we got together in a social situation went to a nice restaurant beautiful um, weather sat outside and uh, it was really great we need to do more of that um, we do need to work on breaking down the silos medicine is full of silos by different uh, specialties hospitals we have service lines in the Jefferson uh, community and we're working on that with um, residents especially trying to do some more um, resident wide programs um, it's important that you spend time with your uh, your colleagues in your same specialty your psychiatry colleagues and everyone does but we want to try to mix them a little bit so you can get to know other people it just uh, promotes better patient care if you know people that you're more willing to uh, reach out and contact them and discuss a patient, maybe a challenging case, and that results in better care. So I'm hopeful that we'll start to see more of that and that as uh, COVID gets uh, through uh, or becomes more usual for us. And uh, I love your point also about getting to know everyone. You know, we're all on the same team, whether you're a nurse, uh, an aide, um, the dietary staff that's in and out of the room, the transport staff, the environmental services, as you said, and I personally try to get to know everyone, get to know their names, say hi, see how they're doing. And it just makes for a, a better work environment. We spend so much time at work, so we want to make it as pleasant as possible. And I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. So one of my career aspirations, um, you know, I, I like being open about my bipolar disorder and working, of course, as a healthcare worker. And I'd like to maybe specialize my psychiatric practice on healthcare workers. So how do you think the mental health needs of healthcare workers are not being met? Mm -hmm. Well, first is just, you know, doing what we're, a lot of times healthcare workers were trained to not talk about this. And that's why I love what you're doing. I love that we're having this conversation now. And it's so important that we break that mold that has been um, so traditional in uh, medicine to keep everything inside. And uh, I uh, am guilty of that in my younger attending hood days that I did not want to talk about uh, difficult cases at home or things that were going on. And I still have trouble with it, but it's so important to be uh, open with who you are and to discuss things and get help if you, if you need it. So I think that we've, um, came along come a long way already and hopefully that will continue 
there are plenty of studies showing that uh, healthcare workers, physicians especially, uh, will not seek help, will not see a, a psychiatrist. And unfortunately, we have one of the largest uh, suicide rates of any profession, um, which is really darn sad. I'm sure many people have personal experiences of colleagues uh, that are listening to this podcast that have committed suicide. So we need to do better. So we're starting to try to change that. So people realize it's okay to ask for help, to talk about uh, what's bothering you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to kind of finish off our conversation. You know, you are an infectious disease um, specialist. So I really would like to talk about COVID. Um, and, you know, you just mentioned kind of a difficult case and uh, you're on an ethics committee. One, um, I would like to eventually serve on an ethics committee. I think that would really be a fascinating, challenging um, role. Um, so there was a case that I was involved in with a patient with uh, COVID disease. Um, she had a, a lot of risk factors, and I was trying to help her with um, more or less all of her emotions, but most severely anxiety um, and depression. You know, being that she was with COVID. She couldn't have any visitors. You know, the only visitors that she did have was her healthcare workers when they were, of course, all, um, you know, masked up in the whole uh, nine yards, shields and everything. And we, of course, try to minimize our time in the room to reduce our own risk of getting COVID, too. So this woman was dealing with uh, really severe elements of isolation. She had bad anxiety. And when you have anxiety attacks and also dealing with COVID at the same time, it's just this perfect storm for respiratory distress. It was really, really challenging. Um, we tried to advocate to, this was, this was about a year and a half into COVID in the Delta wave. Um, so like January of 2022 or so, or Omicron wave, excuse me, Omicron wave it was, I guess, named yep. at that point. I'm losing all the variants at this point. Um, so either way, we, we understood some more about COVID at this time. You know, we didn't have a mask shortage. We did have additional N95s. We tried to advocate to, um, have the husband come in and wear an N95 and, and, you know, he was even saying like, Hey, I'm willing to sign a waiver that even if I do get sick, uh, getting COVID from my wife, I understand the risks and that's something I want to take. Long story short, um, this person was not permitted by hospital administration to visit this patient and she died alone. Um, more or less, she died on comfort care, uh, where her husband at the very last moment was able to interact with her. It was the most challenging case I've ever been a part of because, you know, the days leading to that woman's death, I was uh, there. I tried to meditate with this woman, tried to help her out with her anxiety. Maybe I had some effect, but I knew the whole time that she didn't want to be there holding my hand. She wanted to be holding her husband's hand. So how in the next, because COVID is, of course, going to be around and around and we're going to deal with this virus and maybe another similar respiratory virus in the future. How can we you know, keep in mind safety at the same time, but also the ethical necessities of a person dying and holding their loved one's hand. Right. You got it. Great. Uh, interesting question there, Logan. And um, we've kind of come through different iterations of COVID already. Certainly things are very different now with our rules than they were, you know, two years ago when we started this. And uh, it was super strict then. Obviously, we were really, we didn't know much about COVID. People were, a lot of people were dying. We didn't have any therapeutics. We didn't have a vaccine. And uh, that situation that you describe of people uh, dying in the hospital alone was occurring on a, a daily basis, unfortunately. And uh, 
And that has been quite traumatic for healthcare workers and nurses. And they were, like you said, they were the ones that were in there holding the patient's hand uh, while, they, while they died, which is super, super sad. Um, so it's really a balance of, of trying to do what's right for uh, the patient and for personal and public safety. We have gotten away from that a, a little bit. As you said, with this case, the only um, exception right now is for end of life care. When uh, they are close to death, then administration can make an exception and allow the family member to come in. Um, and I'm not really sure how this will evolve. Maybe it will become a little bit uh, looser in the future. Obviously, when you talk about a, a husband and wife that they've been living together and uh, sharing the same bed usually before the, they got sick. So the spouse was already exposed. And uh, so maybe the risk isn't so bad anymore. And if we give correct PPE and it'll minimize any further risk. And I think we probably will become a little bit looser with those recommendations in the future because there's a, a whole another pandemic that we're learning about uh, resulting from the isolation that COVID has created for patients. I'm thinking mm -hmm. about uh, elderly people, especially in nursing homes, that weren't able to see families. You have seen uh, pictures of families with lawn chairs outside of the, the uh, building on the first floor, and that's how they would spend time with their loved ones through a window. They weren't mm -hmm. able to go in. But uh, elderly people especially lost a lot of cognitive function and died because of uh, lack of interaction. And uh, that's very sad too. So you're right, it is an ethical dilemma and uh, it will continue to evolve. Uh, we'll see, but I I'm glad that at least uh, now for those end of life situations that family members or currently one family member is allowed in to, to spend time with their their loved one, but we'll see what happens. It will continue to evolve. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that you brought up, you know, I think one of the worst aspects, uh, most damaging aspects of this COVID experience was the severe isolation that all of us felt, you know, it, it, the most severely, like you said, the elderly population. Um, but we all can certainly relate to that, especially at the beginning of COVID, you know, now, you know, dealing with it two years later, and of course it's still, still here. I, I, one thing that I want to try to use my podcast for is I still feel like some people are so severely risk averse, people who may actually be healthy, they have minimal risk factors, but they're still afraid to leave their homes. And I feel like maybe they use COVID disease as a cover for maybe their severe social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, um, introverted nature. And I want to respect that introverts, um, you know, they don't necessarily always have to socialize. I'm biased. I'm, of course, very much extroverted. But I, I think any kind of mental health challenge, really everything is better handled in a community around other people. So how can we encourage those people to, you know, keep the risks in mind, but also honor this need for socialization? Right. You got it. I understand that some people you hear that actually uh, felt comfort during the, the lockdown of the pandemic because they didn't have to do anything, right? They didn't have to go meet friends and colleagues and go out for dinner and stuff. It was a really good excuse. But the main point of that is we've come a long way in the last two years and we have uh, 
good therapeutics. We have lots of options and we have uh, um, great ways to prevent the disease. And of course the vaccine is what comes to mind that is really life-saving. And uh, for that person that is um, worried about getting COVID, I would just uh, promote that they use the uh, current science that is available and the vaccine is uh, really life-saving. Um, if you're up to date, you still could get COVID, but you get a pretty mild illness and you're very unlikely to end up in the hospital and to die. So that should provide reassurance and uh, tons of examples of that. Um, I can tell you my personal example, I'm obviously vaccinated and boosted. I just turned 50 uh, three months ago. So I was able to get my second booster or fourth vaccine which I happily did to give me as much protection as I could. Uh, but I did get uh, uh, bitten by the Omicron strain when everyone uh, got it back there in the December, January. But my illness wasn't very bad at all. I had a, I had a minimal cough, I had a sore throat, a headache, and uh, a fever. I was you know, isolated for a few days and I did fine. Um, and uh, that is great. One of the problems we had maybe about a, a year ago or after the vaccine came out, and obviously the vaccine has been very controversial. Um, unfortunately, it really became politicized and uh, we won't get into that. Uh, but we clearly for months and months, we're seeing people come to the hospital that were very sick and dying, unfortunately, who were not vaccinated. And that creates a problem for the healthcare workers that were taking care of uh, patients that could have done something to prevent this uh, severe illness and death. And we talked about that at the, as, at the time. And um, I always would approach patients this way and tell them, you know, I, I wish you would have been vaccinated and it might've prevented this, but I'm still here for you. We're not going to desert you. We actually had patients that would lie to us about being vaccinated. They'd say they were vaccinated because they were afraid that we wouldn't care for them if they weren't. And I would make very clear to them that, you know, I want you to do well. Myself and the whole team is here to help you and we will do our best to get you through this. But it create uh, quite a problem because we were clearly seeing differences in how people presented. So all kinds of stuff unpacked there when that one question there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> on, so forever. You know, what, what I also really, what's, I feel, there's a couple of things I think that are most relevant, you know, to my career. Um, one, people with known psychiatric illness are more likely to die from COVID disease. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I think that's uh, that's an oversimplification, but the data is the data. But I just think what that is really kind of telling us is, you know, those people with severe mental illness probably have a lot of other comorbid factors, whether that's obesity or hypertension, lung issues, you know, likely to use drugs, whatever. Um, yeah. Either way, the data is that these people are dying at a higher percentage than people without mental illness. Um, wh what can you add to this topic? Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's just that really the same uh, points. You just have to make sure you take care of yourself to the best of uh, your ability and, um, you know, make smart choices, use uh, available science to make those decisions, and you should be comfortable with those decisions. But there's a lot we can do to uh, prevent the illness, uh, prevent COVID, and then also, you know, do what's right for you. It's, it might not be time to go to a uh, large indoor event, 
where you know masks aren't required at this point with some numbers going up a bit so spend mm-hmm. time outside out pick an outdoor concert concert instead um, there's plenty of them going on so you can make decisions like that to to mitigate your your risk um, and work on controlling those comorbidities that many people with mental illness uh, certainly have yeah and that will in the long run so in the I had a didactics like two weeks ago um, where we were discussing uh, long COVID uh, syndrome, which kind of seems very analogous to me. It's like chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, it almost flirts with like fibromyalgia, I feel like. Um, and so if any of the audience doesn't know what I'm talking about, these are, um, you know, mental health conditions where you deal with a lot of uh, fatigue, uh, pain at times and long COVID disease. A long hauler disease, whatever you, you've heard it called, um, seems to kind of have similar symptoms. You know, what do you know about long COVID and, and what are the possible treatments that you're aware of? Yeah, it's really tough. The first thing that's tough is obviously it's a, a new illness and we're learning about it as we go through. So we don't know uh, so much about it. Um, most commonly, you know, people will complain of uh, fatigue and uh, brain fog and real general things like that. And unfortunately, there really isn't much uh, uh, treatment uh, for it. Um, With a lot of these uh, chronic problems, usually it gets better with time. You just have to wait it out. Patients don't like to to hear that. But I would work on trying to optimize health in general, uh, exercise, diet, taking care of yourself, and that will help you recover from it. A lot of it is having a a good uh, mental outlook on life that will help you Uh, recover. And sure, for some things like joint aches and stuff like that, symptomatic treatment, anti-inflammatories will help. But I don't think we know everything about it. Uh, And uh, and we certainly don't have good treatments for it at this point, but it's still pretty early. uh, Yeah. That new disease. Yeah, that was kind of the nature of my my lecture on this as well. It was like, well, you know, it's more or less the similar treatments that we offer for depression and anxiety, whether that be SSRIs, SNRIs. Sometimes you could make an argument for starting like a stimulant like you would um, with ADHD or something like that. But the data is so mixed and it's so new that us psychiatrists, we really don't have any idea. So I, I liked what you said. It's like, we don't need to overthink this problem and, and make it into rocket science. You know, if you're sleeping eight hours a night, if you're exercising roughly 30 minutes a day, yeah. eating, eating more, mostly good food, you know, then at least you're giving yourself a best chance. And if you're doing all of those three things properly, then fine. Maybe there's a, a good argument for medication at that point. But, um, you know, I, I, let's keep make sure we're doing the basics. So, um, you know, Todd, I've been grilling you for about 40 minutes here. I really appreciate your time. You know, I want to give you an opportunity before we cease our episode. Is there anything that you want to um, ask me that you would like to, uh, you know, your distant PGY1 employee, as we joked yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, just just kudos. I love what you're doing. I'm so happy that we found your pat- podcast. And I think it's really enlightening to see how uh, open you are to talk about your mental illness and going through life. I think uh, we need to continue to do that. Not everyone's comfortable uh, with that. You're certainly on on the forefront of doing that. Uh, But I really think it's uh, refreshing and you're going to help a lot of people by by doing that, Uh, especially with mental illness. We have to, you know, take it uh, off the back burner, out of the closet and really bring it to the forefront to address it. So other people can see that there are um, 
treatments, counseling, there's, there's ways we can get you through it and, and help you function and live an optimal life. And as we have been saying this whole episode and be happy, do more what, of what makes you happy. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again for, for coming on the show. You know, what we were talking about earlier, I hope we can kind of work um, all as a group and, and break apart some of the silos of the healthcare system. Um, you know, I know a lot of my colleagues would love to have a sit down with an administrator like you. Um, I think it would be a great learning opportunity for all parties involved. So um, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.